0: Welcome to Matthew Felix, the radio episodes, Words and Images. I'm Matthew Felix, author of the novel A Voice Beyond Reason and the travel story collection With Open Arms, short stories of misadventures in Morocco. In February 2018, what is now my Matthew Felix on-air video podcast began as an internet radio program in downtown San Francisco. The radio episodes, Words and Images podcast feature segments from that radio show, in which I converse with writers, photographers, filmmakers, and more. I hope you like the show. And don't forget to check out the current incarnation, Matthew Felix On Air, available here as well as on Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for listening and talk soon. Jasmine Darznik is the author of the new novel, Song of a Captive Bird, a fictional account of Iran's trailblazing woman poet... Farooq Farokzad, is that how you say it? Can you say it? It's
1: pretty close. <laughs> it's Furuk Farokzad.
0: Faruk. So there's. It almost sounds like a K on the end. Almost. Slightly. That's yeah. right. All right. Faruk. I'm not. I'm not going to even try the last name again. Once was enough. Uh, Jasmine is also author of the New York Times bestseller, The Good Daughter: A Memoir of My Mother's Hidden Life. Jasmine books. Jasmine's books have been published in 16 countries. She was born in Tehran, Iran, and grew up in Northern California, where she now lives with her family. Jasmine holds an MFA in Fiction from Bennington College and a PhD in English from Princeton University. So that makes two PhDs on my show today. And I don't even have a master's, so I'm feeling really, really uh, inferior. She is also a professor of professor of English and creative writing at California College of the Arts. Jasmine is currently working on a novel set in 1920s San Francisco, So I'm already going to make sure she's on my show to talk about that uh, when that gets closer to fruition or whenever she's ready to talk about it, quite frankly. So welcome, Jasmine.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for
0: being here. I'm excited to have you. So I want to show you your book so that you believe that I not only read it, (laughs) but I made a lot of notes.
1: It has a lot of, uh, looks like uh, a lot of stickies. (laughs) Yes.
0: So um, I was obviously very engaged. Mm -hmm. I, I loved it. I had trouble putting it down. Uh, which was a relief to me. It's like, okay, I hope I actually like this book since I'm going to spend all week reading it. So so that was great. I mean, the pacing is incredible. The story obviously is incredible, which we're going to focus a lot on today. Um, so thank you for that. Thanks. It was uh, great to have that as my companion for the whole week, That the, the story. Um, so let's... Talk well. I, first, I want to say what I just played. So I didn't know what I was playing. I just found that clip on YouTube. I wanted. I saw you speak. Was it just last week at Left Coast Writers? Maybe the week before. Two weeks. Ago. I guess it was two weeks ago. And one thing you said um, during your presentation was that even if you don't speak Farsi or even if you don't speak Persian, that just hearing her voice was was powerful and worthwhile. And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to find a clip and kind of start off this segment with that. And that was my experience. So you said you actually recognized what she was reading just then?
1: I did, that's a pretty well-known poem of hers. It's called The Wind-Up Doll that's the one it's been anthologized in the norton anthology of women's writing international women's writing right so i it took a little bit but i yeah. did recognize the title well
0: and you didn't know that was going to be sprung upon you in the 60 no. seconds we had before you sat down to begin talking so thanks for that um so one other thing i wanted to ask you sort of slightly off topic before we talk in or jump into talking about the book is when you gave your presentation at book passage i thought it was really interesting that you only read one page or -hmm. two pages, maybe max. Mm -hmm. And so I was just curious about the choice to do that.
1: To do that. Yeah. You know, I feel like the best use of those, those hours can be in conversation, spending them in conversation. So I wanted to read enough that people got a sense of my style as a writer and maybe a hint of what was to come. Right. But particularly because it was a group of other writers, I wanted to really reserve the time to, uh, to answer any questions people had and, and talk about it, and I also, you know, once you've done a few readings, you get, you know, I think you get more curious about people's questions yes. than in what you have to say. <laughs> yes, yeah. So very. So true. I had a, you know, that was a fantastic night, and I was glad to seed some some minutes over and give them to conversation.
0: Yeah, and I, I thought it was a great that you did because I think part of it also is the audience that was there clearly knew you. And so they already had, they were already sitting there waiting, waiting with questions. And I, we had almost, you know, we could have gone on. I'm sure there were many more questions. So yeah. I just, um, I liked that you did that, but then it just made me that much more curious about the book, which was perhaps also part of your diabolical plan. <laughs> but uh, something Farouk says in the book yeah. was that um, the purpose of making art is, quote, connection, not just between one idea and another, but between people. So it almost seemed yeah. to me as if you're reading just that one page and opening them up, making the event more about that exchange was sort of in that same spirit. Oh, Maybe I, I'm reading too much into it. Well, but. I
1: love what she said. I hope that what I did uh, embodied that philosophy because I love it so much. That idea that art is really a way of making a connection between people, not just performing some excellence or asserting your intelligence, <laughs> <laughs> but making a connection to other people.
0: Right. So why Farouk?
1: Wifuru, well, she's obsessed me for decades. You know, I when my parents and I came to America in 1978, my mom smuggled out a book of her poems in her suitcase. So one of
0: two maroon suitcases, right? Yeah, yeah
1: always, that was always the mythologies, uh-huh. and and true, we came with just two suitcases from Incredible. Iran in 1978. So uh, that that book was one of the few books my mom had when I was growing up, and though I didn't read. It until many years later when I was in college. Um, it always had a certain mystique and allure to me, so that was the seed of it. And then once I had finished my first book, I had a really extraordinary experience. I was able to write my mom's story and my family story, which was it covers roughly you know the, a period from 1920 to 1978, 79. Right. And I was casting around thinking, what what can I write? I'm really still very intrigued by this time period in Iran's history, and I'll forever be. A, fascinated by the story of Iran's women. Mm-hmm. So Furu rose, you know, rather quickly, she came, she came to mind and, um, you know, it, it was a long time before I started to execute that, but, um, it seemed in a way also a great project to bridge having moved from memoir into fiction mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. parts of the story were known to me. And so it was a little bit less Uh, a little less frightening than making something totally up from scratch (laughs) so to speak but there was enough that wasn't known where I felt like I could uh, write into the mystery
0: so how did you get to know her
1: you mean as a reader
0: as well I mean in order to write this novel so you you had Mm -hmm. the book you had the book of poems and that obviously prompted you to do some other research and things but that's different sort of from an intellectual perspective of getting to know the person intellectually and their body of work and what mm-hmm. they represent, to me seems somewhat different from saying, okay, I am now going to embody this woman and really tell her story and try to tell it from her perspective because the book, the novel, is written in first person. Right. So how did you kind of get into or get into her skin, if you will?
1: Right. Well, there's a long period of reading everything I could about her, which included her poems, of course, and uh, just saturating my mind with her work and her voice and also versions of her story written by other people. And then it's almost like an actor, you know, moving from a script to improv. I just had to leave all that aside mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. start to uh, imagine who she was. And the jump into the first was really first person was really important for me. I'd started out writing in the third person, she, and that really kept her at a remove. Mm-hmm. And when it was, when I, when I, just decided sort of on a whim to go into the first person. I really was working like an actor would. So now I'm thinking, what would I have felt and what would I have seen? Of course, moving from everything I had learned and I had gleaned from my studies. Right. But allowing my imagination to spring forth and tell more of the story.
0: Right. And you have, I'm going to see, I think this is a little further down in my notes, but I want to... um, jump to this because you just touched on this point. Bear with me for a second. You talked, there was a quote about, um, what was this? I'm not finding it. Hold on. It was a quote about allowing, expanding upon these things that you have and allowing your imagination to build in a way that only fiction can. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something along those lines that I thought was really interesting. And that was how you kind of bridged that gap.
1: Right. So I've always, Really loved historical novels, and I felt that they do tell a truth that we can't quite access in an official or objective his, a history book, let's say. And um, and so that's really the kind of book I wanted to write is one that felt alive and vibrant and um, and full of uh, you know full of full of an experience that probably will will never have access to in nonfiction because you can't really ever know. What's going on inside a person? Right. That's really the realm of fiction. I mean, right. even if I had had a large body, a huge archive, let's say, of her letters, there's so much that we don't even say to ourselves that's mm. inaccessible. So true. And so, not to say that this is, you know, I I think of this as my furuk and not the That mm-hmm.
0: That is how you think of it. I think of it yes. as my furuk. She's yeah.
1: she's based on furuk, but she's absolutely a um, a mashup or a melding of what i know and who i am and yes. what i imagine
0: So tell me a little bit more about that, because one of the questions that I got the most when I was talking to people about my novel, when when my novel came out, was, is it autobiographical? Is Mm. it autobiographical? Is it all about it? So I deliberately was not going to ask you that question. But then I was thinking last night, I thought, well, wait a second. Actually, in this case, there's a different spin on that question, because I wasn't going to ask you because the book is is essentially a fictionalized autobiography. So I thought, well, that's just an obvious question. I'm not going to ask that. But then I thought, wait a second. But Jasmine, again, is inhabiting this person. So, and and you just basically said something along these lines. Mm. So how much of your Farouk mm. is you versus <laughs> her? And I realize you probably can't literally quantify that. Right, right. But... Any any thoughts on that?
1: It's so interesting because when you write a memoir, as I have, people ask you how much did you make up. Yeah. And then when you write a novel, they want to know how much of it is true. It's you,
0: yeah, it's true, right?
1: <laughs> and uh, like you say, it's really it's it would be impossible for me to quantify. But I think that's what we do as novelists, as artists, is we tap into empathy, and we're we're drawing from our own experience. Exactly. There's very little in human experience that is. Unique or strange to an individual. So when I'm writing for example about Furul's experience of Motherhood I could draw from my own experience, right? You know, even though many aspects of my own my own experience are very different but I hope I hope they're very different. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. know, but but I could tap into my own experience and draw on my Capacity for empathy to move in and and tell that so I am in there I I think my all of my preoccupations are in there I've heard writers tend to have maybe just a handful of stories, and we keep telling them over and over again.: Interesting. right? Uh-huh. So what I choose to focus on is, if not autobiographical, it's indicative of who I am. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Someone else writing this story might not have focused on the same episodes from her life. Even right. if we're, we're even, just, even if we're only choosing from known ep- episodes, that very choice betrays something of who we are and what we w- value and are curious about. Right: But
0: that's almost a step back. So yeah. insofar as you're making that choice, someone's not necessarily stopping to think, oh, Jasmine made that choice. So that's telling me X about Jasmine. But that is going going on in the background. Oh,
1: all the time. Yeah, yeah of course. All the time.
0: So uh, you already knew that Farouk was an iconoclast. So you already knew so much about her past and, and why she was important and why why you were drawn to her. Mm-hmm. That being said, again, you, you took things to another level when you decided to write the book. So was there anything that surprised you? about her that you didn't necessarily know before you undertook this project?
1: This project, um, you know, something, a discovery I made that I didn't know when I first started my research was that she had been active in the, at least she had been drawn into the street protests in 1962, which were an important precursor to the events of 1978, 79. Mm-hmm. And that's the first time, time anyone had heard of Ayatollah Khomeini. Mm-hmm. And I was really surprised because I had not until I started writing this book and Really began to think about how Furul's story intersected with Iran's story. Um, I was really fascinated to know that she had uh, she had been detained. And Is this when she picks present. up the three guys after yeah. the, one of them yeah, gets Yeah, so that's yeah. based on um, an event that I learned about in a documentary about Furul that came out in the early 2000s. And I had known, you know, you, when you read her her poems, it's not hard to discern her sympathies, her political allegiances. Um, it's it's all there. But I was surprised to find that very, uh, that really real intersection between her life and this really tumultuous period of Iran's history.
0: Right. Conversely, mm-hmm. any sort of, I know that a lot of, and I think you just alluded to this a second ago, a lot mm-hmm. of the documents after she died, they were destroyed. They wanted to sort of probably erase her to the extent that they could at the time. What sort of roadblocks did you face um, in doing your research and in, in in trying to recreate her life and and, and embody her life.
1: I'm thinking of that great Leonard Cohen line. Um, the what is it? It's it's where the crack the crack lets the light in or something. Uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. But I'm thinking also it's the 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 obstacle is the way is another thing I'm thinking about. Nice. So this lack of material source material was also an opportunity. Was also an opportunity. So had there been more material, I might not have been inspired to write the book.
0: Write a been more about a nonfiction book because the material's there.
1: Right. So it was really frustrating to come across, um, well, there's there's actually a good, there's a book that's that's good, but it's now thir- 30 years old now. Um, there's a biography of her that was written in uh, the early 80s and that was a great resource, but it, you know, it had been written 30 years ago and it was, um, there were lots of questions I had as I read that book and, and it seemed to me if if I were a biographer, I really would have been, um, I really would have had to go and fill those gaps in. But then mm-hmm. as a novelist, it was a fantastic opportunity to just make it my own. Yep jump in there
0: and then someone i think published a book shortly after you published yours right. with had which had more information that you didn't actually have access to is that right
1: and that book is it's only available in persian okay. so far so and i have not read it i knew it was coming out and by then i was nearly done you know i was really just copying we were working on the copy edits to my book and it made no kind of sense to, <laughs> to read it yeah. because yeah. i think then i would have you know first of all it was that that ran against the spirit of the project which right. is really to. Uh, to think about her to think about her um, as as a as an iconic character and to think about her her place um, her place in Iran's history and in world history, and to do that through the imagination. so had I you know all of a sudden eleventh hour started picking up. <laughs>
0: No, yeah, this that, not a it, good idea. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I
1: don't know. I mean, it, it 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 was tempting in some ways. I wondered if I had gotten it right because sometimes oh, you hear true. from novelists, you hear that they'll guess about things and then subsequently some uh, historian will find out how it really went and sometimes their theory, as it were, is confirmed. Right. So one of my mysteries that I was working from from the very beginning was how did Furuk die?
0: Mm-hmm. This
1: was a huge mystery. It was, to me, one of the... The, the great challenges of writing this book, because in life you can let a mystery exist, mm-hmm. but a, a mystery of that kind in a novel would really frustrate a reader. You could write yeah, it. You right, could write it. Right. And I was looking. Actually, I looked at. Um, I was looking at Joyce Carol Oates's novel *Blonde*, which tells the story of Marilyn Monroe's life and death. And I was really curious. How did she handle that? Yeah. How did she handle that? So, I always knew that I had to that I had to take that on and to some extent I had to solve that mystery that history hadn't solved.
0: Okay, because we don't actually know how she died.
1: Well, there are various theories. Mm -hmm. However, this biography that you're talking about, I think, I still haven't read it, yeah. but but it would be interesting if the answer I came up with were in line, were with, in line with what
0: really happened. Yeah. 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 Well, do you know that this new biography knows for a fact how she died? Or yeah. they're just, you don't you know. know yet. Yeah. I mean,
1: all you're ever doing, even as a biographer, is building off what people tell you right. or want to tell right. you. And this is an event that happened 51 years ago. And people have Long reasons time. for telling you certain versions of stories. Certainly. Right? So, Particularly in this case. Absolutely. So the, the mythology about Poodle's death is that she had martyred herself, that she had uh, swung her car out of the way to avoid a school bus full of children. Mm-hmm. Now, it's it's possible, but I think also there's such a glamour in that story. Yep. And And so I think that people who've told that version of the story, I think they believe it, but I think they also have particular reasons for believing.
0: Well, I will say that your version is more convincing to me. <laughs> I will definitely say that your version is more convincing to me and seems much more credible. Not that I have any idea what I'm talking about, but just given her story and given what I learned about her, it, it felt much more credible than just the fact that she had intentionally martyred herself uh, relative to the school bus, but Mm -hmm. readers will have to read the story and they can decide for themselves. (laughs) So again, this, this notion of embodying her and really getting to know her, I think that a key part of that for you was translating her poetry. So she was a poet. Um, not to be confused with a poetess, because she went from being a poetess <laughs> right. to a poet, which was very significant culturally. She was the first Iranian poetess to become a poet without being uh, having the patronage of a man, and that was a very significant cultural one of her many cultural achievements that she did. But mm-hmm. so you had to, um, but you decided to do the translation from the Farsi, from the Persian, to the English. Okay. How did that help you? Because that's probably, perhaps, I'm guessing off the top of my head that that would be perhaps your most intimate contact with her, right? Because Absolutely. this is, so tell us about that mm-hmm. and how that how that felt and what that experience was like.
1: Well, the poems had been really important to the composition of the novel and I hadn't necessarily thought I would include them in the okay. early drafts, um, but I used poems for every chapter. I had a poem that was like the um, touchstone for every chapter. So either I was setting a mood or I was, drawing out an episode. I was imagining a scenario. The first chapter of the book is drawn from a, it's inspired by her poem. I feel sorry for the garden. That was a poem that had affected me for years and so years sad. and years. It's a beautiful poem. I didn't like poem. that story.
0: I didn't like that part of the story. It was, it was so sad. But it yeah. was sad, yeah. but, <laughs> but you know, it was
1: also, it was also emblematic of what was happening. Very much on. so. Yes. So in that, in that chapter, I used that poem as a template or a touchstone emotional touchstone or to set, um, a certain tone for the chapter. And then I imagined a scene in which Furul's childhood garden is actually destroyed, right. that it's a literal destruction of the garden. So there are many, many, many scenes that were reenacted based on my readings of the poems mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and translating the poems was also, it was very important because as you say, it, it allows us kind of, intimacy right that's the closest meeting of minds that could happen Um, right and so i used the poems as i was composing the book i didn't know that i was going to include them until my editor was really keen to have um to have hoodl's poems in the book and um and so we uh you know I, i chose the ones that felt most evocative and we weren't able to reproduce the full poems but but more or less every chapter takes a a stanza, some verses, and uh, incorporates that into the the imagined story.
0: And so what's your relationship with Farsi or with Persian? And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is you didn't grow up speaking it there. You were five when you came here. So obviously it was very well ingrained by the time you moved here. But you're not speaking it day to day since that. I mean, maybe you are with your family, yeah. but that's different, obviously, than living there. And so, what is kind of your? Is it something you speak at home with your with mm-hmm. your family? Because mm-hmm. I know I'm a non-native speaker of a couple other languages, right. and I know, and of course, my experience is much more superficial than yours, being a native speaker of a second language. But um, you know, when I'm in Spain, speaking Spanish is very different than when I'm here, you know, mm. because so much I think of language is related to place. Right. So what is sort of your relationship with with Persian and how did that then come into play? Because it seems to me also going one step further that she's that's her language as well so again there's the intimacy in the sense that you're connecting with her thoughts and feelings and experiences but then there's that extra layer you're also connecting with her in her own language you're not relying on translation so you're getting that much closer so can you tell us a little bit about i know there were five questions there but (laughs) whatever you want to whatever you want to address in that uh
1: no no it's good so i um i actually grew up speaking farsi exclusively oh you my, did my mom was really adamant about my speaking Persian, and we didn't know we really didn't know a lot of iranians didn't know how long we were staying in america That's and the right. idea was we were going back so i forgot about that yeah. so that, so that was um that was maybe part of it is that that she wanted me to stay um, fluid, fluid the practical in the language. side. Yeah, yeah. Because we didn't know. I and mean, we still don't know. It's been 40 years. <laughs> right. Right. It could <laughs> still happen. We're, we're, we're still thinking, uh, when are we going back? But, um, but, but also my mom was very, you know, she's very proud of the language and she, she really felt it was important that I'd be able to talk. And my grandmother was also very important in my growing did up. Did she and, come? Your grandma? She did come. Okay. She, she was almost like a second mother and okay. she spoke no English at all. So Which I Which is spoke, great for you. Then. It was wonderful Forced for the me. issue. It yeah. forced it. Yeah and it was, uh, it was really wonderful um, because i grew up speaking farsi but there's a difference there's a huge chasm in in persian between spoken persian and, and literary. literary persian but this is exactly what furukh was writing to and at was that persian poetry had really been the province of a very educated elite mm-hmm. and there's a beauty in that poetry we're thinking i'm thinking of rumi or khayyam or uh, hafez. Ahtar, hafez there's so many Illustrious poets in Iran's past, but um, but it, by the 1950s, when Fuzuli's coming onto the scene as a poet, it feels old. It feels creaky. It mm-hmm, feels, mm-hmm. Um, and it also feels like it can't encompass a woman's experience because, because all that poetry—they're all men, right. and they're all writing in this very generic persona that erases their gender or presumes that the reader understands that they're men and the, the reader too will be a man.
0: <laughs> and were they all Sufis? I think all of those or most of those there that you just cited were Sufis. Many of them were. So, so there's the Lumi rose and the wine and yeah. there's all of that, all of those metaphors. That iconography. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And and Furukh loved much of that poetry. She started out writing poems in the manner of Hafez and a lot of her her early poems follow a traditional rhyme and meter and use those symbols of the rose and the nightingale and all of that. Right. But by the f- 1950s, when she's writing, it just doesn't feel like the language of the moment. It doesn't feel like the language of life. And so she's, she writes in free verse.
0: Well, someone, you talk about that in the story where it was it Parviz, was it the or Nasreen? One of the two guys mm-hmm. introduces her to a poet mm-hmm. who is writing in this more contemporary style and she right. sort of has this epiphany. Right. Oh, wait, I don't have to emulate these old masters. Right. I can do it in a different way, and I can do it in a way that's more contemporary and true to my voice. And it sounds as if that was kind of a milestone in her life and in the book. Because oh, absolutely.
1: Then... And also that she could write with an with an eye, with that autobiographical eye, which no woman had done mm-hmm. before. Never mm-hmm. had that been done, where a woman was asserting her lived experience in such a unabashed way right so that that was really tremendous and um and so foodals persian her her poems are they're not easy but they're more accessible to someone like me who didn't go to university in iran and i've heard from um professors of Persian that they'll use full poems for uh, for Americans or students of Iranian origin who are learning Persian because mm. the, the rhythms and the it's so fresh still yeah and it's a really wonderful teacher accessible tool. accessible so I actually learned I learned my literary Persian I'd grown up speaking Persian but I learned my literary Persian through Furukh. I started reading her poems in college, and she was my first point of contact. Until then, I had felt totally shut out by the tradition. I knew it was extraordinary. (laughs) I knew there was a lot to be proud of, but I also felt really um, inaccessible to me. There there are translations, you know, but um, probably it would take two decades of study before I could ever read Hafez in the original Persian, um, so, Furug was just accessible to me sooner. She was a woman. Her experience resonated with mine much more profoundly. Yeah. And so it was a really exciting point of entry into Iranian poetry for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Were you worried that, um, I'm going to change gears a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Were you worried that you were maybe playing with fire <laughs> by taking on the life of this icon because she is an icon? Sure. Um, especially, and not only is she an icon, But she's someone that people have such strong opinions about, whether positive or negative, because Mm -hmm. the more traditional branch of society or side of the house thinks she's this harlot and she's this whatever. And or maybe they don't. I mean, I guess maybe that's a question. Maybe Mm -hmm. today she's universally accepted. I don't know. I guess that's Mm -hmm. a question where... Maybe, yeah, maybe let's start with that. Can you tell us what her place is in, to the extent that you have an understanding mm-hmm. in Iranian society today? Is she sort of, univer- does she get a pass because mm-hmm. she's this historic figure and even traditional, more religious, you know, side of society accepts her? Or is she still pretty um, divisive or controversial or, or all of the above?
1: Well, if we're talking about Iran of today, of, yeah. of what's happening in Iran, her yeah. poems are published in Iran, but all references to the body are excised from okay. her poems. Mm-hmm. And what she's writing about is still revolutionary, whether it's women's emancipation or it's um, the inequities, social inequities, the disparities between the wealthy and the poor, or environmentalism. I and mean, there's so many topics that are still really <laughs> contentious in there. Yes. And so, um, so I, you know, she doesn't get a pass, but she is... She's got legions of fans. She's got, you know, generations of women who've grown up, you know, in the decades since who only know her as a legend or only coming to her decades after her death. You might every once in a while, I I encounter someone who in America this many years later, 51 years since she died, will say, why are you writing about that? You know, that whore. (laughs) Really? And yeah. Really, so you know, exactly. Because yeah. that's, yeah. you know, and, and often those are people who've never read her poems. Right. Interesting. But she was such a lightning rod for people. She was such, um, such a, for her lifestyle was so shocking. Her poems were shocking and her lifestyle was shocking. And so you might encounter that every once in a while. But absolutely, there are there are so many people for whom she is one of the maybe one, two, three premier modern Iranian poets. Uh, she's got a tremendous following both in Iran and America. And certainly uh, she's uh, she's she seems to have a particular allure for Iranian women. Mm-hmm. So of the poets and even of the woman poets, she's the one that people remember yeah. and know.
0: And are there a significant number of other women poets? There are a good number mm-hmm. of other
1: women poets, Um there are, her closest contemporary is Simin Behbahani, who wrote for many years beautiful poems, but in a much more traditional way, mm-hmm. because she then had to contend with the Iranian regime that came after 1979. Right, right. was writing under the Shah's regime, which, though it had repressive aspects, arguably he, nothing she like... She had a little more leeway. Yeah, nothing right, like or the, a lot more leeway. What was coming, right. Yeah. So it, it's a really, it, it's a really, it's a really unique voice Furuk has because she's just, it's, it's like it could only happen for this small length of time and then nothing else since has been that fresh, that honest, that, that dangerous.
0: Which is why it's lasted. Which a lot is, of the reason. Oh, I, a lot of the reason. yeah I think so. Yeah. So we sort of just touched on what she means to, mm-hmm. to different different women but I really liked what you said in your epilogue Uh about what she means to you so I'm going to read a quote from your epilogue quote for me a young Iranian woman coming of age in 1990s California reading Farouk's poems felt like crossing into a different country which is a very interesting metaphor given your experience Mm -hmm. into a different idea of what it meant to be a woman into Mm -hmm. different possibilities for whom I myself could become and then a second quote her poems changed me They stoked my curiosity about Iranian women's Mm -hmm. lives. But let's go back. It felt like crossing into a different country, into a different idea of what it meant to be a woman, into different Mm -hmm. possibilities of whom I myself could become. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Because that's pretty powerful.
1: Oh, you know, I'm even trying to make sense of it myself. (laughs) Well, now's a great time. Now's a
0: great time to make sense of it.
1: Well, one thing is that I I grew up in a very traditional family. Okay, interesting. And I think my my mother for sure was much more traditional than she would have been had we stayed in Iran. Mm. And so when I say it felt like crossing into a different country, it's also crossing into an Iranian identity that's a woman's identity, but that's much freer than any I knew when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. So uh, Furul writes at a moment um, with this you know, this, this daring and these, just a, a real vigor and lust for life. And, and a lot of that I felt was, um, you know, it, it was really foreclosed to me. There was so much emphasis on tradition and, you know, a certain, a certain, you know, decorousness <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and I rebelled against it a lot. But that's what I thought Iranian women were. Yeah. I thought they were. I thought they were well behaved. I thought they were quiet. I, I mean, I thought that was. Those were the rules of the game. Right. If, if you were a woman, so she really Furu really presented this different idea and an idea. Also, this is this is very touching to me when I think about Foorooz is that she's never not Iranian. And I think sometimes when we think of Iranian women, we think, you know, that that only we've only ever been inspired by the American model of what it means to be modern or liberated, Mm -hmm.
0: which is a big theme in your book.
1: And Furul chafed against the traditional strictures. Absolutely. She did. But she was also very Iranian and she was very. um, She she, chose not to leave. She she chose not to leave. She had she traveled wildly. wildly Wildly and widely widely. (laughs) she did both sure she did travel in her life but i do have this feeling that she she very much she felt iranian and though that had stalled her in certain ways it was such an important part of her creativity and her identity identity right yeah and uh, and so that was really important to me that that here we have a woman who who's iranian and modern who's who is you know, deeply bound to the culture and also to an idea of of um, of freedom and independence that usually is only ever associated with America or the West or
0: right. And that's your struggle as well, and you're actually living in America in the West, yeah. So yeah. it's kind of her struggle, but in this different context. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's.
1: It's really exciting to share Furul's story because a lot of people can't imagine a woman like Furul ever existed. And I think, you know, not only was she ahead of her time in that country, but in a lot of ways ahead of our time in this country. Absolutely. (laughs) That's
0: that's later in my notes. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about that, because that that is one of the things that I was going to bring up is, you know, in reading the book and in preparing for today and things, um, you know, I kept seeing well, 50s and 60s, such an interesting time in Iran, 50s Mm -hmm. and 60s, such an interesting time in Iran but then i stopped you know when i was preparing for today and i thought well yes but again as with any story i think that really resonates it's it's sort of timeless and i mean we have the me too movement going on we just sure. had international women's day you didn't hear the intro to the show but mm. i talked a lot about that that it's international women's day it's international uh women's month or some i forget what exact women's history month is what it is as well but there's there's still so much struggle going on sure. i mean were these so many of the issues that she was dealing with now of course the context was different her case was really extreme she was really um i mean just so courageous and such um up against so much i mean giving out giving what was going on but at the same time they are still so much of what she was going on or dealing with and confronting is still struggles that not only women but all different oppressed groups Right. you know, still face. So yeah. I think, again, to me, that just makes the story that much more universal in its appeal and in its message. Um, so I realize now I'm talking for the last five <laughs> minutes. So yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that insofar as the fact that, you know, her experience isn't really just relevant to that time period.
1: Sure, of course not. And I, I think, I can't remember who said this, but um, it was a novelist who remarked that no matter what time period you're writing in, it's always a historical novel. Hmm. And yeah. and and in a way, even if you're writing, the converse is true too. Even if you're writing what seems to be a historical novel, it's also a contemporary novel because sure. you can't escape your own times. Right. So, however much I want to just you know catapult myself into another realm <laughs> and be, let's say, in the era of the 19th. 1950s and 60s my imagination is shaped and inflected by what's happening today right now i didn't i didn't start caring about women's rights last year or 10 years (laughs) ago you know Uh so sort of Uh you know it's fantastic when people say you're you've written something that really speaks to the moment but but uh, these have been these have been themes and questions and um, it, it's been with me for so many decades now. I, I didn't feel I was just on that cusp of growing up. I grew up in the '90s in California. You, you sort of got the feeling like, oh, feminism—that thing over there—like that—that's been that's been taken care
0: of, uh-huh, right?
1: Uh-huh. And and of course, there were so many things that my generation didn't have to fight for that the preceding ones. Thanks to the preceding did right. right. right? But I never had a feeling growing up like this story is over. I didn't because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in part because I was very aware of internationally what was happening in Iran, what was happening with women's rights and human rights. And so I couldn't let myself think that story was over. I knew it wasn't. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, uh, and, and so now, you know, when, when I hear, oh, feminism's back, you know, <laughs> I, thought, I think yeah. to me, it never went away. It's never right. not been important. Right. And it's, it's actually really fantastic that people are acknowledging how much hasn't been addressed or remedied, how much far, further we have to go still.
0: Yes, yes. And not and just
1: in those countries over there, but in our own.
0: Well, and, and again, that to me, that is, is one of the underlying big points that we've been making here. And, and that, that why I wanted to talk about that is we do tend to think of so many of these struggles as happening over there. Right. Because we figured it out over here. I mean, I'm obviously speaking and very, um, euphemistically, but you know, it's so easy to think, Oh, well that happens in Iran or that happens in Turkey or that happens wherever the country might be. But you know, we've, we figured it all out because we've got women work here and whatever the issue might be again. And, and it's just, no, that's, that's not the case. Again, these are universal problems and different places are at different, different, um, different places in the timeline of figuring them out or, or, or addressing them in different ways. Um, but the problems are universal. And we're still figuring them out.
1: Yeah, they just take new shapes yeah. in different forms that we can't always recognize right away. Right. But I think about the ways that teenage girls are, you know, the, that you think of the incredible number of eating disorders and the still the staggering amount, not for young women, for all women, you're more likely to die in your own home than you are anywhere else. The violence against women. Right. Um, all of these things are so pressing and so with us and so not likely to go away anytime soon.
0: Yeah, and they're not just happening elsewhere, they're happening here. Yeah. But let's go elsewhere, let's go to (laughs) Iran, because there are a couple other things I want to talk about specifically about Iran. Because, um, well first of all, sort of a higher level question, then we'll go a little deeper. But I never for a moment would have suspected that you hadn't been, been there as an adult when you mm-hmm. wrote this book. Mm-hmm. So I thought that you did an amazing job. I was, I was completely in Iran, or at least I think I was. I was in your <laughs> Iran, right. uh, which was very convincing. So, how do you write about some place that you haven't been to since you were five years old? Because it's not just a question of looking at pictures. I mean, you have to sure. capture the experience and the smells and all of the other things. So, how did you do that? Hmm.
1: Well, I really had just, as I, I used the word saturated early in our conversation, I just saturated my imagination for years and years. And I'd also been raised, as I mentioned, by my mom and my grandmother, who's, she grew up in the Iran of the 1920s. And their stories were, they're, they're always very much with me, their their stories. Um, and my, my mom, in particular, her memories of Iran in the 50s are so much more vivid than California of the eighties. Uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh. So I've had so many conversations. Of course, my first book was like a long conversation with my right. mom, and um, she took you there. She did. Yeah, she really did, and she evoked an Iran that doesn't exist in Iran any- mm-hmm. anymore because Iran has modernized. It's it, it's um, it has uh, really shed shed the Iran that was my mother's Iran that was Furuk's Iran and uh, And so that was a really important part of it was was that first book almost was was um, you know I can't I, I can't even really imagine like the immersive. second book it was totally immersive yep. and then you know and and then other than that, I think for me when I'm writing I'm really I'm looking for what feels like an evocative, what's an evocative detail for me so I will and it's almost always something sensory a smell, a scent a t- a, a taste, um, something like that and I will build scenes around senses. Mm-hmm, I will mm-hmm. build. Se- so I think that's part of why you feel sure. like you're there is yes. that I use that a lot. I use a lot of sensory uh, detail in the writing. The
0: spices, the, um, yeah, there were just a lot of, yes, a lot of sensory details. And kind I think, yeah, I think that that's key. Cause yeah. again, we can look at a photo, but that's just a two dimensional sort of experience. So you've got to use the other senses in order to really take the reader there. Yeah. yeah. Another thing I want to talk about is politics in history mm-hmm. because it seems to me next to impossible to write about Iran, particularly you know, doing so from the United States and particularly in the time period in which the novel takes place without addressing the politics, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, was it at all challenging um, to try to decide how much you should delve into that versus how much you shouldn't? And because I'm, I'm curious also because... You know, when I was growing up in Ohio in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, America, I think that most Americans, at least the Americans around whom I was surrounded, didn't really know so much about the role that the United States was playing in Iran's internal affairs. Right. Mm. I, I grew up basically thinking that, you know, Iran was the bad guys and they took our hostages. And of course, we were innocent and we were the victims. And I didn't know that the CIA had, you know, played the role that it did and that we were, you know, meddling so that we could secure the oil, that there was a lot more going on there. So growing up to me, Iran was sort of, you know, we had to be careful of of those guys over there or whatever. And you called it out directly by summer, quote, by summer's end, 5,000 people would be dead in the streets or shut away behind prison walls. The CIA's first covert overthrow of a foreign government drew to a close. Iranian oil was again firmly in foreign hands. Mm -hmm. So did you have to give any thought to how much do I want to go into the political situation there? Because... You know, as we talked about a little while ago, um, Farouk, her story, you can't, it is in that context of these events, but she wasn't necessarily campaigning all the time. That wasn't no. really a focal point of her day to day. So was was there, what sort of thought did you give to how you and how much you were going to represent the political, you know, those different aspects of what was going on in Iran during the time she was uh, living, having her story?
1: Sure, so her, her timeline is the one, the most important one. And I, and I knew that were these events in her life I had to touch upon. Now, once you do that, then you're, you're also, of course, thinking what else is happening in the country and how is, what are, what are moments where even she might not have in that moment been aware of the import of what was happening. Exactly. And, uh, but 1953, which you just read a section about 1953, Furuk was 18 years old. She was going through a divorce she didn't leave behind any poems that were explicitly about 1953, but to me it was really interesting to, to juxtapose the story of a woman's bid for independence and the country's the destruction of that for for the country right yeah because because that's the moment still and in, in, in many iranians minds that's the moment when iran's history in the 20th century really started was when it no longer had its fate firmly in its own hands right yeah and and so that was an interesting juxtaposition for me is this kind of ascent of this woman um, while her country is feeling less and less in charge of its own destiny right and then, otherwise, you do. Uh, uh, whenever you're writing about a country that's maybe not its history is not as well known as as others, uh, you are doing a bit of educating, but you have to do it with a light touch. Right. So I don't I don't set quotas or you know <laughs> metrics for myself, but I would never write for you know, more than a page, let's say, about mm-hmm. something like that. And it has to be in some way. Important to the story, right? Right. It has to be in service to the story, right? Because otherwise, it reads didactic. It reads, it reads like a history preachy book, or, a preachy, or just boring, right? or just boring, yeah, <laughs> or, or not the book I signed up to read, right? You know. So, so hopefully, readers do come away with more nuanced um, understanding of Iran's history, but they don't feel like it was, um, it, it, it was sort of you know beaten over their heads, you know, and it, and they're made to understand that this woman's story it's there because it was important to this woman's story.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I just thought that was particularly interesting because, you know, you're not in France writing this novel, right? Mm-hmm. You're you're in the States writing this novel, and so it's yeah. the the contentious relationship that our two countries have had, and this is your country and that's your country, so it just seemed like an interesting place for you to be in as the writer. And for what it's worth, I did not feel um, bored or beaten over the head with it. And I thought it was really interesting and, and, and relevant. And again, yeah. those are such big things. And, and so much of this novel, of your novel, was, I mean, and and you said this just a second ago, too, with, you know, her life had to happen because of all these other external circumstances. I mean, it was because of what was going on in the society in Iran at this time, including the political situation, but then this, this struggle between East and West, the, the new Iranian woman, should mm-hmm. we have a modern garden or stick with our old? I mean, all of those things contributed to her being able to become what she was and become right. this figure. Um, so those things have to be part of the story, but I was just curious how much thought you had to give to, um, to how you handle that, so thank you for that. Okay, we have 3 minutes and I have a lot more questions yet again so I'm just yeah. I want to figure out um we kind of already touched on that. So uh dun, dun, dun. let's talk about sacrifice because I think that that was another that's another big theme. She sacrificed so much and I'm not going to say what she sacrificed because mm-hmm. there's such big things and there's such an important part of the story what she sacrificed. Mm-hmm. I don't want to give any spoilers, but um You know, she says, quote, I lost my name and I was no one. And like I said, I'm not gonna tell why. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there was, there was freedom in this to be a woman on my own. And again, you don't know this, but I just talked about similar themes with Diane before it, before you came in, because we were talking about her traveling on her own. She grew up in the fifties. She was doing a lot of things that women didn't do at the time, including traveling on her own. So this idea of doing things on her own that traditionally weren't necessarily done at the time. Mm -hmm. But, uh, Continuing the quote, it made me strong and it made me the poet I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you also say in the epilogue along the same lines, quote, the risks she took cost her a great deal, but they also made her the artist she became. So the same sentiment there. So what are kind of your thoughts on just this idea of risk and sacrifice Mm -hmm. contributing to... The, art, the creative process and being our truest, fullest selves mm-hmm. and how that kind of relates to her story, because it's so key to me, it seems, to her story.
1: Oh, absolutely. And she insisted sh- for her, it felt that who you are as a writer should not be different from who you are as a person. Right. And so she really lived these ideals or tried to died trying to. Uh, she really believed so much in honesty and truth and that cost her But those were the kinds of poems she wrote, and that's the kind of woman she wanted to be. And that's tremendously moving for me as someone who didn't just, she didn't just write poetry because it was an exercise to circle back a little bit to something we were talking about earlier in the conversation. It wasn't just, you know, pretty words or ugly words. It was art an emanation it was an emanation of her truth and a, 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 it was authentic written, self. it was right. written from her authentic self. and um, and so I find that very moving and also inspiring to me as a writer. yes, and maybe ultimately what it's all about. And we don't talk a lot. John Gardner does in in some of his writings. he talks about the moral dimensions of imagination and mm. creativity. Mm-hmm. but but I think about how. How that's, that's a really, it's a, it's a really powerful alliance. I think this idea that who you are should be reflected. You should be not just someone who speaks of certain ideals, but you should embody them in your life.
0: Amen. Uh, Yeah. I will say that I found the book very inspiring. So thank you very much. And I have no doubt that men, women, anyone who reads this book, um, it is very inspiring. And I think it is a reminder to, to live a life that's true to ourselves, to be our, our authentic selves, and, and also a reminder that that's not necessarily easy, that there are challenges, again, that there are sacrifices, like we were just talking about, that come with that. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the no risk, no reward. And what greater reward than actually living a life that really is representative of who you truly are? On that note, uh, I would like to say that you are going to be at Why There Are Words yeah. on, at Studio 333 in Sausalito on April 12th. But is there anything else you're doing promoting this book that we need to let people know about? Or is that your next sort of uh, appearance or event?
1: A oh, few events down south, but the next big one in the Bay Area, other than Why There Are Words, which is just fantastic, is the Bay Area Book Festival. Okay, So I'll be on uh, April the 29th talking with a group of women from three other countries, oh, about excellent. strong women. Excellent. The so, theme continues. Yeah, it's yes. exciting. It's nice. Okay,
0: so check that out. The Bay Area Book Festival. Festival. Uh, yep. Where's that?
1: It's in Berkeley. They take in over Berkeley. Berkeley for one weekend in okay. April. Last weekend in April.
0: Okay, so if you're in Berkeley, last weekend in April. If you're in San Salido, the second week, I guess that would be of April. And then if you're down south. Uh, but basically, to find out what Jasmine is doing and where she's going to be, check out Jasmine Dash Darznik, D-A-R-Z-N-I-C dot com. N-I-K. What did I say? N-I-C. I did. Oops. <laughs> I'm reading it. I'm re- my letters are bad. And my English is really bad when I'm spelling. Yeah. I'm looking at D-A-R-Z-N-I-C. Sorry. Maybe I was looking at the C and the dot com. There's yeah. got to be a reason I did that. Jasmine, thank you very much for coming in oh, today. My this pleasure. is great. Thank you so much. All right. And I want to. I want to. I want to hear about your. Uh, my novel. your other book. Yes, the the other novel when um, when that is closer to fruition. Next time. Next time. So, before we go, I have a great episode next week. Author Annette Nyquist will be calling in all the way from Stockholm, Sweden to talk about her forthcoming book about gold. Chris Cassidy will be here from the San Francisco Bike Coalition. He'll be talking about the state of biking in San Francisco and the coalition itself, which should also be a great segment. Thanks to you for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please help me spread the word. On my show page, you'll see many ways to share on social media. If you see a post on Facebook for an upcoming show that sounds good, please share that. It all really helps, and I really appreciate it. For more about me, my website is matthewfelix.com, and links to my social media books, audiobooks, other podcasts, and all the rest can be found there. Last but not least, if you have any comments, show ideas, or just want to say hello, you can email me at felixonair at matthewfelix.com. Thanks again for tuning in and until next time, have a great week.